Side Hustle Show 326. Let's go pick up profit. How to make money reselling stuff on Amazon. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because there's profit everywhere. You just have to know where to look. One surprising and I think exciting place to look for that profit is just in nearby retail stores where my guest today has found more than a million dollars worth of stuff to resell, specifically Jessica LaRue and her husband make money buying low locally and selling higher on Amazon. They take advantage of Amazon's FBA or Fulfillment by Amazon program so they don't have to ship anything to the end customer and they've built a pretty substantial business doing this. They've even got their eight-year-old son in on the action, and you can learn more about them at thesellingfamily.com slash hustle. Stick around in this episode to hear how Jessica sources profitable inventory to flip, the tools and buying criteria she uses, and how you can literally get started with this today. I'm a fan of this side hustle because it's so simple to understand, it's repeatable, and you can see results from it quickly. Notes and links from this episode, plus the free downloadable PDF highlight reel, are at SideHustleNation.com slash Jessica. I'll be back with my top takeaways from this call with Jessica after the interview. Ready? Let's do it. What we do is we go to a store and then we don't have any idea what we're going to find when we get to a store because it's going to be new and different every single time that we get there. For example, say that we go to Big Lots. It's one of our favorite sourcing stores and we tend to rotate because we will go through a store, pick it clean, and then we'll let it be for a few months. We'll go to Big Lots and it will be the first time that we've been there in a few months. And we're going to start to look in all of our favorite areas. So for us, we're going to look in the household cleaning section. We're going to look in the health and beauty section. We're going to look in the groceries and we're going to start looking for things that we recognize. So brand recognition, right? We want our buyers also to recognize the brands that we're picking. And what do we see that's at a great price versus what we would pay at a normal store like Target? And then what looks unique? What is it something that maybe we haven't ever seen before when we've been sourcing or just shopping in a regular section? So that may mean air freshener and a special holiday scent or cookies that are limited edition, things like that. We're we're looking for something special. Now, the next process is we scan the heck out of the products that are on the shelves in front of us. So we have an app on our smartphone and we literally take the product, we scan the barcode, just like they do when you're checking out. We scan the barcode and it tells us how much that item is selling for on Amazon and what the rank is. Now, the rank is our only criteria that Amazon gives us or our only indicator of how well something is selling. So we're looking at those two things. We're looking at what is it selling for on Amazon and what is the rank. I will tell you, it's not like we pick up a product and that's the winner and we head on to the next store. We scan 20, 30, 40 products in an aisle and then we move on to another section. It gets easier for us because of the time that we've been doing it. But the reality of a retail arbitrage business is a lot of time is spent scanning products and realizing that they're selling on Amazon for just as much as they're selling for in the store which means there's no money left for us. Yeah, after shipping and fees and all this stuff, you got to find something at a pretty steep price difference or price spread. What's the app that you're using to scan this stuff? 
We're using the Amazon seller app most of the time. That is the one that I recommend for everybody who's just getting started. And to be honest, it's the first one that we use whenever we're scanning too. It's quick. It's directly linked to Amazon. So there's no question on, okay, is this actually something I can sell or not? And are these fees correct? So we don't have to question that when it's coming directly from Amazon. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that's the one that I was using when I was out scanning for stuff as well. And it's free. Just link up your seller account. Yeah. Now, the caveat with that, Nick, is that you do have to have an Amazon seller account in order to use the app. So that's kind of one of those catch-22s for a lot of people is they want to get started with retail arbitrage and they want to just test the waters out, but they can't do that without actually signing up for an account. And so it feels kind of backwards because you would think, if I'm going to test the waters, I'm just going to scan some stuff, but I don't want to commit to Amazon that I'm going to be a seller. Well, really, in order to see all of those details, you do have to have a seller account in order to do that. When somebody is signing up, and again, this is sellercentral.amazon.com to create that seller account, would you have them just log in with their regular Amazon shopping account? Or would you have them create a separate business, like reselling business as a seller? It's gone different ways over the years. There was a point in time where Amazon said that they recommended that we use a different email address and create a completely separate account. In the beginning, when I started, there was no mention of that. And now today, they don't mention that at all. So what I recommend is that just people sign up with the account that they already have. It keeps things simple. And you don't have to worry about, okay, which login is this for seller? And which one is this for buying? And which one is this for my S3 account and all this stuff? So for me, everything's just lumped into one account. Yeah, especially at the very beginning, if you just want to scan some stuff and see what is out there in your town, what profit might be in those aisles, do it the easy way. Do they still have a free trial on the professional seller plan? Because it's $40 a month to be a professional Amazon seller, and they do have a, a free plan as well. I'm just curious your take on the difference between the two. They no longer offer the free trial like they used to. And that's a big bummer, but they've also made it easier to use the individual selling account, which is the free account. It used to be that if you didn't have the professional selling account, you couldn't create listings on Amazon. You couldn't use scanning apps because they didn't have one. And so in order to use a third party scanning app, you would have to have that professional level account, which is $40 per month. But because we're recommending that you just try things out with the Amazon seller app, you can do that on the free individual account. Yeah. And if you find yourself starting to sell, it says, if you plan on selling more than 40 items a month, you should upgrade because there's a dollar per item fee. Right. So at that point, you're losing money if you don't have a professional seller account. And it's really a simple process of upgrading and downgrading. If you get to the point where you're selling 40 items per month, it's a click of a button to upgrade to the professional selling account. And then if you find that, oh, I haven't sourced in a while, or I'm going to take a little break, you just click a button and downgrade your account. It's a simple process of going up and down. Does it show your name? So if somebody is shopping on Amazon for this product that you found at Big Lots, and it says, sold by Jessica, but fulfilled by Amazon. Is that a field that you have to fill in in the seller account signup process to say, this is my company name or this is my seller name? Yeah, it's your storefront name. 
and you make that up. It can be whatever you want it to be. And the nice thing is, is you can change that with the simple click of a button as well. I know a lot of times when people are creating their Amazon seller account, they get caught up in that. They're like, I don't know what to name my store. I, I can't move forward. And you can name it whatever you want. And then if in three months or two weeks or whatever it is, you decide, no, that doesn't quite match what I want, you can change it. The thing with the Amazon storefront name is, to be totally honest, it doesn't even matter. You want to make sure that it's something that's appealing because it is shown to buyers. And people may be listening to this and go, I've never even seen a name on Amazon. And now they'll notice it. They'll see, oh, it does say fulfilled by Amazon, sold by this person. And now they know those are people like you and me. What I just recommend is that you make it something professional, that you don't make it personally identifying. I'm not going to be Jessica LaRue's store. And I'm also going to be not do something like discount mart because I don't want people to look at my products and associate that with being cheap. Something professional. Some people do, you know, my cat's corner or mom of three. I've seen really creative ones too that make you want to support them like my adoption fund or something like that, where it kind of tugs at you emotionally and you're like, oh, well, I'll choose this person over this person. But when we're being really, really honest, we're choosing the person that's the lowest price and the easiest to buy from, right? Yeah, mine was called, I think, Seymour Smiles Products. And it was just like totally generic, but hopefully sounded fun or sounded legit, sounded fun. But yeah, like I said, most people never even see the sold by whenever we talk to people about retail arbitrage or any type of selling on Amazon. They're like, I thought it was just Amazon that sold all the stuff. It comes in Amazon boxes. Yeah, half of their inventory is crowdsourced from sellers like you and Side Hustle Nation. Absolutely. There's no way that Amazon could even think to have access to all the products that we have access to. And why would they want to? When you really think about it, We're taking all the risk as a seller and they just get to make money off of it. So it doesn't make sense for them to try and carry every single thing in the world, but they want to be the everything store. So they, that's why we come into play is we get to provide the everything that they can't. Yeah. The world's largest consignment store. They built this really, truly world-class logistics network and said, Hey, you can tap into it for a fee. And we're happy to do that for you. And it helps their customers and it allows you to build a business. So that makes sense. So don't overthink the seller application thing is, I guess, the long and winding point of that part. Yes. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. 
And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Okay, so you're in the store, you're in Big Lots, you're in wherever, Walgreens. You're scanning this stuff with the Amazon seller app. You're looking at the bestseller rank. You're looking at the price spread. Is there a minimum profit per item or minimum margin that you're looking at for, for each purchase? Yes, absolutely. Now, I'll be honest that my husband Cliff and I, we have varying perspectives on this. Whenever we look at an item together, we may, one of us may say, oh, this is great. And one of us may say, well, this sucks. We're not going to sell it. I'm kind of on the more, I want to make more money. He wants to sell more items. So we try to find a compromise. Our compromise really has become that an item has to make at least 50% return on investment. Meaning if we spend $10 on a product after Amazon's fees and our costs, we need to clear at least $5. So if that doesn't happen, then we're not going to buy a product. So if we're going to buy something for $10 and we're going to make $3, it's not going into our store. Our other second part of that is that we also don't want to sell anything that we're going to make less than $5 on. Now, it's kind of sucks sometimes because we may find something for, say, $7 that we're going to make $4 on. So that beats our 50% criteria, but it's not $5. And so if it's just one or two items, we're going to completely skip it. And most of the time, we'll choose to just skip it no matter if there's 100 or if there's 20. The caveat on that would be if it's ranked super, super low, and we know that as soon as we send them into Amazon, they're going to sell. So if I could sell 100 of something in a month and make $4 a piece, well, that's still $400. So we may be convinced to do that. Otherwise, we stick pretty tightly to the 50% ROI and $5. I recommend that when people get started that they do the same, maybe even try for a higher ROI like 100%, because when you have less money to deal with and you are trying to just really get your feet wet and try the system out, you want to be a little stricter because you want those items to make you good money so that you have more money to invest. And more important though, than just ROI is the rank. That's the biggest criteria. And one of the biggest mistakes that I see people make when they first get started is that they don't think about the rank or they don't consider it at all. 
and they say, okay, well, I found this item for $10 and I'm going to make $50, which talking about our criteria of 50% ROI, well, now we're talking 500% ROI, right? Like it's a great return, but the rank may be 300,000 or 500,000. So they spend their money to buy a product thinking it's going to be this huge return, but then the product just sits there. So for beginners, people who are just getting started buying inventory, what we recommend is that they keep a really tight restriction on their rank of at least 150,000 maximum. And the lower they can get, the better. So if they can find products that are ranked 50,000 or 25,000, even 100,000, then that's okay as long as it also meets the ROI and profit criteria. But not to get loose on the ranks because that's one of the biggest mistakes that we see people make is they've bought a bunch of really profitable inventory, but it just ends up sitting there. Okay, so you mentioned toys. Are there any other product categories that you like for new sellers? For me personally, I like grocery is like one of my favorites because it's consumable, right? People eat it and then they want to buy it again. Then health and beauty products. So things like, it always sounds weird, but things like shampoo and conditioner, face creams, lotions, stuff like that. And the reason that's one of my favorites is because people are super particular about their health and beauty products. So maybe it's not the same for guys. I know my husband has like this shampoo he really likes and is willing to pay more on Amazon. But I know for me and a lot of my girlfriends, if we have a favorite type of makeup or hairspray that works perfectly, if that thing gets discontinued, we're willing to spend way too much money on it. So I love finding discontinued health and personal products. And then household items and toys, which is a really, really broad category. So it covers a lot, but it's really fun because people get interested in finding like really unique stuff for their house or if they're decorating their kid's bedroom. And for example, my son's all about Fortnite right now. So it's really hard to find Fortnite specific stuff, but I'll look on Amazon all day and see, oh, there's this new comforter out or there's this new wall decal or something like that. I really like to get into niches, but I'm not going to only do that. My eyes are open to everything, but in as small of categories as I can, if that makes sense. Yeah, that was surprising for me when I was doing this. Babies R Us was a great stop for me. So I was going there anyways for baby stuff. And then he was like, well, let me swing by the clearance section. And it was these bed sheets that they had, like these big bulky quilt packs, I guess. They were big and bulky to ship, but they would be on clearance and they would sell for like 180 bucks or something on Amazon. And I was really pleasantly surprised by that. If I'm a brand new seller, can I sell grocery items? I'm assuming like non-perishable stuff. Yeah, totally non-perishable. And there are a lot of rules. Your dates have to be, as a general rule of them, at least three months out from the time. So that does cut a lot of things out of the category. Like you're not going to be selling bread or hostess cakes usually aren't going to fall into the category. But think of things like right now, there's these Oreos that are the most stuffed, two double stuffs in one. And they're Limited edition and in our stores, they're completely gone. And Cliff's saying, can we just order a couple boxes on Amazon for 10 bucks? Now that seems pretty crazy, right? I mean, $10 for a box of Oreos. But those are the kind of things that we're looking for when we talk about groceries is those things that are hard to find. Maybe they're limited edition, special flavors that are only out seasonally. 
a lot of times cookies, candies, baking mixes that are limited flavors. So during Halloween, we could find a lot of flavors like pumpkin, pumpkin spice during those holidays, right? But now if you go to Target, you're not going to find pumpkin spice anything. So where do you go? You go to Amazon. So I'm thinking about like the Girl Scouts, Girl Scout cookies in particular. Do people sell that stuff on Amazon or is it... Does the Girl Scout have a monopoly on that? How does it work? Actually, they do end up on Amazon and for quite a bit more money than the 4 or $5 that you pay in front of the store because you can only find them for a couple of weeks, maybe a month. Yeah, manufactured scarcity. Yes. You mentioned before, why aren't the manufacturers just selling right on Amazon? So I'm thankful that they're not because I need them to have that scarcity, of course. But across the board, a new seller can sell groceries. And Amazon, I'll just give this little caveat, is that Amazon does change from time to time. There was a time where groceries was completely closed. And then there was a time where you had to only be approved in it. And so in two weeks, this may be inaccurate. Amazon always gives a list though of what categories are available to be sold by new sellers. See what you can sell at the time and and really get into that. But for new sellers, I say grocery, home items, and toys. And toys is one of those ones that opens and closes. And during the fourth quarter specifically, they sometimes completely close the category to new sellers. So as long as you've been selling for a while, you're okay. But if you are listening to this and it's in December, you may start to can't scan some toys and go, every single thing says it's restricted. Well, it's just a seasonal restriction. And then sometimes there's also subcategory restrictions. And I hate to get too technical. I don't want people to be like, this doesn't make any sense. But as soon as you scan those first items, it'll all of a sudden make sense. My favorite category, like I was saying about the health and personal care, that is pretty much closed to new sellers right off the bat. And you have to get approved to sell in that category. So that may mean that you have to buy from a wholesaler and provide Amazon with invoices. It may mean that you have to have certain things from specific manufacturers, like a letter saying that you're okay to sell that. That's why I don't recommend it for somebody just getting started. It's because you want it to be as easy as possible and you want to have as much in stores that you can do without having to go and buy from a manufacturer because that just makes the whole process another step ahead. Yeah, you kind of want to get out there, prove to yourself that it can be done, and then worry about some of these other categories later. I'm curious, have you ever done anything with books? Because there have been a few people posting in my Instagram feed and and in the Facebook group about their success and kind of finding used books and then reselling those. I actually got started on Amazon years ago in the book category. It was my very first introduction into how Amazon worked. And at that time, I mean, that was pretty much all people were talking about was selling used books on Amazon. Things like college textbooks that students are done with, and then they just throw them to Goodwill. They don't resell them back to the school or anything. And then the next year of students, they want to get them cheaper than they cost at school. So they'll go on Amazon and pay $200 for a textbook that we could find at Goodwill for 5 or $10. Oh, it's such a racket. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Books is an awesome category. It can be frustrating to new sellers because it's so wide, but there's a few things you can do if you want to look at books is you really look at the niches. With books, it's usually used books, right? It's not new books. And so you're going to places like Goodwill, different types of thrift stores, and you're looking to see what type of niche books you can get. So you're not going in and looking for like this Twilight series, 
because those are mass produced and there's just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. So they're not going to be worth any money. But if you go in and you look for rabbit cage for a home farmer, right? Like that's a niche book. So those type of items have a better chance of being worth more on Amazon because they're not super mass produced and they're harder to find. And so it's surprising sometimes like we've sold a book on how to build a bird cage for like $40 that we bought at a yard sale for 50 cents. What's cool about books is that the margins are so high. So it's really good for people who are getting into Amazon that have very, very little capital to get started with. If you only have 10 bucks to start with and you go to a yard sale and you find some books for 25 cents, 50 cents, maybe even a dollar, you can walk out of there with 20 books and then possibly sell them for a few hundred dollars. Now, it's not going to be super fast, but it does start to get your money flowing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a tremendous return on investment. There was a guy who came to one of the Side Hustle Nation meetups in Seattle a few years ago. He told me, I forget the app that he was using, but he had it hooked up to a Bluetooth headset. He had his buying criteria for the books in the app, whatever the sales rank is, whatever the price point. We had all these different metrics that he was looking for. And as he would go down the aisle, it would be like, dun, 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 as he's scanning these barcodes, dun, dun, ching, and he puts it in his cart. Dun, 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 ching, and it was just like, made it super simple. Just auditory feedback on like, yes, I'm buying this. No, I'm not buying that. Yeah. And that's done usually through a Palm Pilot type of a device, like a PDA. They're really cool because you download the whole entire Amazon book database to that program or to that device. It's not pulling it up from the internet. When I scan using my phone, it's pulling the information direct from the internet. So that's why there's a little bit of a delay. But with those book scanning softwares, it's all downloaded. So it's pretty instant on how fast it can do it. That's pretty cool stuff. Do you ever get any weird looks when you're in the store doing this or like, hey, why does this lady have 17 of this particular item in her cart or any stories like that? It always causes FOMO. If we're putting in all that they have of something into our cart, then all of a sudden everybody else who walks by feels like they must be missing out on this great thing. They probably had no desire to purchase Chex Mix But all of a sudden, because we have a hundred of them, they need to know what they're missing with the Chex Mix. That's what we get a lot. And that's kind of frustrating because for us, when we're sourcing, we're working. So we want to be able to just get what we're getting and then move along. But if all of a sudden you have five people standing around you and they're trying to touch it and they want to look at the back and really they're just trying to figure out what the big deal is, maybe we'll step away for a minute or we'll just hand it to them. And be like, here you go. And then it usually is followed with a question like, oh, is this on sale or something? Oh, we're just planning a party. We just need a whole bunch of them. Or all the kids are getting the same thing. Yeah, my my kids really love checks. Same story with the cashiers. They'll buy off on that or do they not care? Even if they know that you're reselling it, they don't care. (laughs) That's where I was actually going to go next. That's funny. The cashiers often have more to say than another customer will because customers don't often say something to another customer about what they're buying. I've had that happen once and I was actually really frustrated about it because I had a bunch of candy and the lady commented about it. And I was like, I'm not asking you about what you're buying. Why are you buying so much soda? 
<laughs> but with cashiers, that's their job, right? To talk to the people that are checking out. And so they often have a lot more to say. And my rule of thumb is whatever question they ask, I pretty much agree. Because they always usually will say something with an assumption. So it's not like a general open-ended question. It's more of a yes or no question. If we're buying a bunch of pajamas, oh, wow, your kid must really like Toy Story. Yep. (laughs) Or, wow, it's so nice that you're donating all these toys. Oh, thank you. Because they're not actually asking, are you donating all of these toys? Or why are you buying so much of this? It comes with an assumption of what they think. Or you must have a whole bunch of kids. Yep. (laughs) Because I don't want to get into that conversation. And there are stores who aren't reseller friendly. And one of the ones that been in the media a little bit about it is Target. They've made a public declaration that they don't sell to resellers. Well, the only way that they're going to know that you're a reseller is if you're one saying that you're a reseller and two, if you're trying to use a resale certificate. So I'm going to let the employee think whatever they want to think, because it doesn't really matter to me what they think about what I'm buying. Does any of your stuff end up on eBay or is it exclusively Amazon? We do use eBay as well. It's very little, but there's a program called Joe Lister that we use. And what it does is it will take the Amazon listing and build you an eBay listing. And then it uses what's called third-party fulfillment to take our inventory from Amazon and then it will ship it to our eBay customer. So it works in a couple of different ways. Sometimes we buy something to sell on Amazon and maybe when we bought it, Amazon wasn't in stock. And so when the item gets there, if Amazon comes into stock, they're very difficult to compete with. So we can have that item listed on eBay and we're no longer competing directly with Amazon as a seller. And so we can sell that item on eBay and still never touch it. Oh, cool. Yeah, it is actually really neat. When you list it, there's this calculator and it'll say, okay, if you sell this item on Amazon, you're making $20. And if you list it on eBay, in order to make the same exact amount, this is what you need to sell it for. And they take into consideration the cost that Amazon is going to charge you to ship that item to the customer. It's really just like a click of a button and then some tweaking on the listing because when it pulls in from Amazon, it's not perfect, but it pulls the image and everything. And they know exactly how much you have in stock. So if you have five in stock on Amazon, they'll list five in stock on eBay. If you sell one on eBay, your stock goes down on Amazon. If you sell one on Amazon, then your eBay stock goes down. So it's really nice. Yeah, that's really cool to be able to cast a wide net or target buyers on both markets. When you're out shopping, so the app will help you estimate the fees and then you kind of have to add on a plus or minus 9-10% for sales tax. Do you have any rules of thumb for estimating shipping this stuff into the Amazon warehouse? Yeah, I recommend when somebody's first getting started that they use a dollar per pound to estimate their inbound shipping costs because we do pay for shipping to Amazon. We don't have to pay shipping from Amazon to the customer. So that's good. And we get a really discounted rate by using Amazon because they're shipping so much stuff. So if I was to send something directly to you, it's probably going to cost $10, but I could send that same package to Amazon and it may cost a dollar. It's highly, highly discounted, but your stuff goes all across the United States. So it's easier to estimate higher at a dollar per pound. And then once you've been selling for about three months, you can go through and see, okay, how much did I actually spend per pound on my shipping? Because there's warehouses in California that are very close to where we live. 
if we send to those warehouses, we may be only spending 25 cents per pound. But if I have to send a inbound shipment to New York or New Jersey, then it's going to cost a dollar per pound. In the app, there's actually a setting when you go into your settings where you tell them what your estimated cost per pound is, and they will calculate that out as you scan the item, and it will be taken out just like the Amazon fees are. Okay, cool. And I imagine you stack up this stuff until you have a bulk shipment to send in, and you're not sending in items onesies, twosies. Right. Our goal is to be able to send at least one complete box so that we can capitalize on that discounted shipping. Because of course there's minimums. They're not going to allow us to send a box for a dollar, like I was giving in that example, because it doesn't meet their minimum. So we're going to spend at least, say, $5 to send a shipment in. So it's better for us, and it actually lowers the cost per pound, the bigger the shipment is and the closer that it is to 50 pounds. But for me, as long as I can fit like a Home Depot medium-sized box, then that's enough for us to send one shipment in. Okay, Home Depot medium-sized box. Yeah, that gives a good example of how big it is. I was blown away with how cheap Amazon's negotiated UPS shipping rates were. What you would take to the post office, they'd be like, that's $45. Do you want insurance? They're like, it's $7.85. And you're like, all right, Amazon, let's do this. I know. It's crazy. And that also helps with the eBay thing, like I was saying, because we still get Amazon's discounted rates for them to ship the product for us. So you actually get to make a little bit more money than if you were shipping it yourself to the customer. Yeah. Are any of your students doing this in... Canada, in Europe, outside of the U.S.? We have a lot of students who do Amazon through Canada, and they sell on the U.S. platform. There is also Amazon.ca that they can sell on. And there's also students from the U.S. that sell on the .ca platform. And then there's also people from the U.K. who sell on the U.S. platform. A lot of times what I find is that people who are international, that they will do more of an online arbitrage approach and they're buying from U.S.-based retailers and then they're using a prep center in the United States. So they're buying from, say, Canada, from Target.com, having it shipped to a prep center in Tennessee, and then they're shipping it to Amazon for them. So the products don't actually go international and then into the U.S. They're basically from the United States and then resold in the United States, but the seller is living outside of the United States. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you ever do any of the online arbitrage stuff? Yeah, there's a lot of tools that make online arbitrage easier. I'm kind of old school. It depends on what kind of a mood I am in, if I want to go through and just manually look for stuff. But it's the same process of looking for something that's selling for less at the store than it is on Amazon, and then figuring out what the difference is and how much profit you have left. For me, it's easier to have the product in front of me, to touch it, compare it with what's in the listing on Amazon versus online, especially getting started, because sometimes you're looking at a listing online and you think it's exactly the same, but then when you get it home, it's not quite exactly the same as you thought it was. That's why I like to have it in front of me. Plus, looking in a store narrows down the field a little bit, so you don't have as much to look at. Because if I go to walmart.com, there's hundreds of thousands of items. It's pretty much unlimited what I could find. And then funny thing about Walmart now is that they also have third-party sellers. So you're trying to figure out, okay, am I buying this from Walmart or am I buying this from a third-party seller? 
and what's the actual real price. But online arbitrage is really great for people who maybe hate shopping because if you don't like to be in a store, retail arbitrage isn't for you. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like me for sure. Yeah, there's definitely people who are like, I buy all of my own stuff online. Why would I go into a store for an hour to look at stuff when I don't even want to be there? And maybe if you don't like to shop, you're not familiar with even the layouts of the stores. You're not familiar with how the discounts work. And so there's just people who are much more comfortable buying stuff from online. They want to have that stuff shipped to them. And if you buy stuff online and have it shipped to you, it's cool because then it comes in nice boxes, it's packaged well, and then you can just put your label on it and send it to Amazon. A lot of times you can get more stock than you can if you get it from the store. If I find something in the store, maybe I only find five, but if I was to buy it online, I could find 10 or 20. It does also mean that other sellers can also find that many, usually two. So it's a little bit more competitive if you buy online. We find that the ROI that we talked about earlier is a little bit lower than it is in store, but that's just one of those things where as you sell, it's easy to decide, okay, how do I want my business to look? What are the things that I'm okay with having be one way versus another way? For me, if I only want to get 100% ROI, maybe that means I only buy stuff in front of me. And if you're okay with having a 50% ROI, but you want to really go for getting more volume, then online works great. Yeah, absolutely. So Tactical Arbitrage was one software tool that has been recommended in the past, and it looks like they currently have a free trial version. Any other tools that you like for the online stuff? Yeah, I use SourceMogul. It's very similar to Tactical Arbitrage, except for me, I found it much more user-friendly. The interface just makes more sense to me, the way that my brain works. I started using that one, and that one is pretty strictly for scanning specific stores. And then it will spit out a list of all the items that it matched up on Amazon, what the price is at the store and what the price is on Amazon, what the profit is. And tactical arbitrage has a lot of extra bells and whistles that source mogul doesn't have right now, but for ease of use, I've found that that's just easier. So that's what I use. Okay, cool. Thanks for sharing that. You mentioned putting your label on the product after you get it in your house before you're sending it off. What label is that? Because that apparently was a step that I skipped or just never did. Or if there was a box to check, like let Amazon label that for me. That's what I always did. So what's the prep that goes into it before sending these products in? So there's a couple of things that have to be done with the items before they can be sent to Amazon. I'll just go over the whole process. So when we buy something, we bring it home and then What we do is we scan it in or we tell Amazon what the item is that we're selling and we're going to be putting that into our inventory at that time as a listing. And we're using the listings that are already on Amazon so we don't have to create our own listings for anyone who's familiar with eBay. Yeah, so you punch in your barcode, Amazon says, how many do you have? Just add those to my account. Yeah, and then you tell Amazon what do you want to price that item at and then you put it into a shipping plan at that point and Amazon will ask you questions about the item. Like, is it possibly hazardous, flammable? Does it have an expiration date? Things like that. At that point, you can say, 
do you want to label the item yourself or would you like Amazon to label the item for you? So that sounds like that's what you've done. What that means, the label is what identifies your product as your product. So Nick, if we both sent in a box of Chex Mix and mine has a label on it and yours doesn't have a label, mine will go in and when the buyer buys it, they're going to get the exact package that I sent in. When they buy yours, they'll get whatever package is closest to them. It can't be done with all of the categories. So grocery can't be what's called commingled, right? Because your inventory is with other people's inventory. It has to have a label on it because of the expiration dates. And then there's a couple other things that can't be commingled. Like if there's two listings for something and you have to tell Amazon which specific listing you want, you wouldn't be able to not have a label on it. So for me, it just makes it easier to label all the products. So then I know that the customer is getting exactly my product. Is that just a barcode sticker that you're throwing on it? Or what does it look like? Yeah, it looks like a barcode. And it's called an FN SKU, which is like Fulfillment Network SKU. <laughs> and it scans as a barcode and we cover up the UPC code on the product. So then when it gets to Amazon, they're scanning their barcode rather than the manufacturer's barcode. And that just identifies us as the seller. After that, you tell Amazon all the different items that you have. You print out your sheet of labels. So they go on Avery address labels, which are like if you were sending a letter and you were printing out addresses on them, it's that label. And then you put those right on top of the barcode. If your product has any type of open face on it, so say that you are selling a Lammy toy, it's a stuffed animal, that needs to be bagged because it needs to be protected because the warehouses are dirty. They're open to all the elements that are in a warehouse. And so that product needs to be protected. So it needs to be polybagged. And then your poly bag needs to have a suffocation warning on it to make sure that kids know it's not a toy. And then the label would actually go on the outside of that. Once you've labeled and packaged your product, another example would be, say that you were selling a candle. Well, that's breakable. So you would need to bubble wrap that to make sure that it was going to end up able to arrive safely to the customer. Once you've done all of that, Amazon says, okay, now your stuff is ready to send in. Here's where you're going to send it. Then you box it up nice and neat. Tell Amazon how big that box is, how much it weighs. They'll tell you how much it's going to cost. You say, yep, I'm good with that. And then send it in. (laughs) Put the label on top, have UPS pick it up, and then you're good to go. Yeah, I don't know if this has changed, but so I wasn't selling anything perishable, so I didn't have to put my own barcodes on there. And every now and again, you'd get this error message that would say, this thing needs a label or it needs a bag or it needs something. We'll do it for you for a dollar. Like, yes, please, I don't want to deal with it. Just do that. Is there a service that you like for generating those FN SKUs? We prefer to just do it right inside of Amazon, just inside the platform itself. Oh, and then you can print it on the little label stickers yourself? Yep. There is a program called Inventory Lab where you can create shipments as well. And that's something that I recommend people try eventually, but it's not one of the very first things that I recommend people start with because there's so many different things that you can use in your business that make it a lot easier, but they add to the monthly cost. I try and get my students able to get started with Amazon with as little going out as possible and then add on things that help them in their business later on. Yeah, absolutely. Same thing with blogging. You know, don't buy all this software that you don't need at the onset and just add it on as as the business justifies it. I was going to ask, and I'm sure you have over the course of 
the last several years and selling a million dollars worth of stuff. Any purchases that you put down a decent sized bet on that didn't pan out? <laughs> Too many that I <laughs> that I'd like to admit to. We like to go all in on stuff sometimes. And so I have something sitting in my garage right now, even that is we bought it thinking it was the greatest thing. And then it turned out to be a complete dud. This one, it's a seasoning packet, like a marinade. It's like a liquid packet. And we thought when we scanned it, that it was ranked a thousand in grocery, which a thousand in grocery means it's just flying off the shelf. And on Amazon, it was selling for $12 and we were able to buy them for a dollar if we bought them in bulk. So we're like, sure, we'll buy a hundred of them, which thankfully isn't that huge of a investment. Got them home, went to list them and realized that it wasn't a thousand in grocery. It was a thousand in a subcategory in another category. Hard to explain what that actually means, but it means it was a crappy product. <laughs> it means nobody was actually buying these. Nobody was actually buying it. So it's like a subcategory ranking means nothing. And a thousand in a subcategory is not even good. So it was, oh, well, let's just try a couple anyway. So we sent some in and they just sat there. They haven't done anything. So those all just get donated. Okay. Thankfully, only a hundred bucks. So not the end of the world, but it happens. Right. And we've had those experiences multiple times over the years where we've bought items and we just thought for sure it was a winner. We always say usually worst case scenario is that we break even on something. If we send in, say, a toy during the holidays and it was selling for three times as much as when we bought it in the store, and then all of a sudden it gets to Amazon and the price just drops, there's a whole bunch of sellers on it. Usually we can still make our money back. It's very rare that we completely lose out on the product, like on these ones where we actually are not even going to bother selling them because we could probably wait it out and sell one or two a month and make a dollar. But at that point, it's like, just let the $100 go and find something else. Yeah. When you're adding inventory to Amazon and they ask you to input the price that you want to sell it at, do you just match the current price or do you try and undercut that a little bit? What I like to do is look at the listing. And when you look at the listing on Amazon, there's a couple of places. It's hard to say when we're just talking instead of showing it on the computer. But there's a spot that we call the buy box, which is where as a customer, Amazon gives you those two options where you can either add it to your cart or you can buy it now. And that's our featured seller. That's the price that they're recommending that you buy it for. And that may not be the lowest price, which will surprise a lot of the listeners because now they're going to look at their next Amazon purchase and go, hey, why are they telling me to buy this when I can buy it for $5 cheaper from a different seller? So we look at what's called the buy box and we say, okay, this seller is who Amazon's suggesting. So they're our first price recommendation, first thing that we're going to try and match in price. And then the second thing that we'll look at is, are they an FBA seller or not? Because if the buy box happens to be a merchant fulfill seller, meaning they're sending it from their house, they're not using the prime program and a prime buyer doesn't get to buy from them at their free shipping then we will actually price above them a little bit. Sometimes that's $5 above. Sometimes that's a couple dollars. It just depends on the base price of the product. 
because somebody who has a prime membership is always going to choose a prime seller versus somebody who's merchant fulfilled, even if it costs a little bit more. If it's another FBA seller, we will match their price or go a few cents above so that they don't try and lower their price to be below us. And then if it's a merchant fulfilled, we go up. The cool thing about pricing on Amazon is that it doesn't matter if you're the lowest price. Amazon rotates that buy box through everybody who qualifies for the buy box. Gotcha. Well, very interesting stuff. This has got me energized to take another look at this side hustle. Lots of juicy details in this one. Thank you for sharing that stuff. What's next for you and the selling family? For us, it's really just going to keep finding deals and see what new things we can sell. Our son's getting more and more into it now. He's eight. So right now, after we get done with the call, we're actually going to go sourcing and he's going to come with us. And he's got $100 he saved from, he did a flip a couple of months ago where I think he sold four OxyCleans that he bought for $5 each and they were selling for 55. And so he made 130 bucks. He spent $30 and he's been saving this $100 so that when he can go sourcing with us, he can buy more inventory. It's always a new adventure. And then really focusing on our students and making sure that they can turn the side hustle into something that means the same to their family as it does to ours. That's really what's important to us is it's just been such a blessing to us and that it means so much to us when we can see that same thing happen for other people. That is so cool getting your son involved, teaching him how to multiply money and he's going to be a third grade mogul. That's awesome. Yeah. He says, can we go pick up profit? Yes. (laughs) I'm like... Yeah, sure. <laughs> that is super cool. Well, the sellingfamily.com is where you can learn more about Jessica and everything she's got going on over there. The sellingfamily.com slash hustle will get you access to a free seven day course if you want to learn more about this Amazon FBA business. See what profit you can go pick up this afternoon. I love it. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for side hustle nation. Doesn't have to be FBA related, whatever entrepreneurial wisdom you want to impart. I'll keep it FBA related. I say the number one thing is really to give it enough time to see fruit from it. One of the biggest mistakes that we see people make when they first get started is they go out sourcing one time and they don't find anything. And they're like, you know what? This is done. I can't do it. It's not going to work for me. And we always feel like people quit right before their big moment of aha. There's times we go out and we don't find anything. And so In the very beginning, it can take three or four trips before you find that thing. But once you do, it's like, oh, this does work. It is real. Just make sure to give it enough time. I like it. Jessica, thanks so much. And we'll catch up with you soon. All right. My top three takeaways from this call with Jessica. Number one, don't overthink it. If you're getting hung up on what to name your Amazon seller account, you're doing it wrong. Pick something get access to the app and start scanning. Just try it as part of your next shopping trip. You might be surprised like I was at what's out there at deep discounts relative to what Amazon is selling it for. Don't overthink it. Takeaway number two is to start lean. There are a million different tools and software resources to make your life as an Amazon seller easier. These are the companies selling shovels into the Amazon FBA gold rush, right? I'm totally for it. But at the beginning, all you need is that Amazon seller app. My recommendation is going to echo Jessica's. Start lean and then add complexity and tools and expenses as your revenue justifies it. Takeaway number three, 
this is the important one, is to pay attention to the seller rank because I gotten burned by this in the past too. And remember, the lower the number, the better. When I was sourcing, I found a couple screaming deals that mysteriously the app didn't show a sales rank for at all. It had good reviews, so I figured it must have at least sold a few times, but it just sat and sat and sat in the warehouse earning storage fees for a long time before it eventually did sell. But what do you think? Are you excited to get started with this one? I might take another crack at this next time I'm out shopping. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of the Side Hustle Show, where we're diving into some entrepreneurial physics and learning how to get unstuck in your business. I'll see you then. Hustle on.